It's a privilege to be here with you all and to bring God's word to you. Please turn with me in your Bible to James chapter 1. Our sermon this morning will be on James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Two verses, but two rich verses. They're all rich. But let's look there now. James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. God bless us as we study this passage this morning. Show us the meaning of true religion and distinguish it in our minds from what you call this worthless religion. In Jesus' name, amen. In the 1500s, there was an English explorer. His name was Martin Frobisher. He was searching in the New World for a northwestern passage that would connect the Atlantic to the Pacific. He didn't find it, but he did find what he thought was gold ore. And he brought back to England 200 tons with him. If you're doing the math, that's 400,000 pounds. He was commended by the queen and there was a lot of excitement about this, and they sent him back with another fleet. And he gathered on this next trip 1,350 tons of this ore. Remember, if you're doing the math, that's over 2 million pounds. They brought it back, and they spent five years smelting it, convinced there was gold inside. What they found, it was worthless. All of these years, all of this time, all of this money spent, on this worthless ore. It turned out to be something called hornblende, which is, it looks like it's ore that has metal in it, but actually it doesn't. It's deceiving. In our passage for today, James 1, verses 26 and 27, God speaks about something else that is worthless, a different type of fool's gold, you could call it. It's called worthless religion. This is startling. It's a startling statement. Listen to what he says. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. It makes you tremble a bit, doesn't it? Imagine a religion that looks true and looks pure, but in reality, it's deceptive. And the person who thinks he is religious has even deceived his own heart. Do you see that? If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. This forces us to stop, to look at ourselves. Uh, the point of this passage isn't for us to try to look around and find a person of worthless religion. The point is for us to look inward and to examine our own hearts. Can be, the scriptures can be a little bit like going to the doctor. It can be uncomfortable to have someone examine you, but... We need to let God examine us because it's better to find out if there's a problem ahead of time than to go on and not realize that there's a problem. Studying the book of James can be a little bit like working out. If, if you work out and you don't ever feel sore afterwards, maybe you're not doing something right. Uh, the book of James can be very convicting, but conviction 
is a good thing. Conviction is a sign God's working in our heart, that God's purifying us, and we don't want to waste that conviction. James talks about something we can do where we look into the law of God or into the word of God like we're looking into a mirror, but then we walk away and we forget what we saw. And he warns us about that. He says, no, you should, you should look into the perfect law of liberty and persevere. Let's let, the, let the law of God, let the word of God convict you and then press on into that conviction saying with prayerful hearts, God, how can, how can I live out what you've convicted me about? Help me to walk in, in new obedience. So we, we give thanks to God if he does convict us. As we study this passage, what is it that we'll find? It's possible that you could find that your religion is dead, that you've been living a life that you think is religious, but actually it's worthless. God forbid, but God could use a passage like this to wake one of us up. Another thing we could find is that, yes, we are alive in Christ, but we need repentance in one area of our life or another. I suspect that we all can find this in one way or another in this passage and in the book of James as a whole. And the third thing we can look into this passage and find is ways that God has changed us. You might look at this passage and then think of where you used to be and think of all the grace God has shown you. If you've made even the slightest bit of progress in your war on sin, that's all due to grace and praise God for that. So we'll find reasons to give thanks as well. But as we look at this passage, the main point here is we want to see that some, some of the distinctions between true religion and worthless religion, from, from true religion and false religion, or as James calls it here, worthless religion and pure and undefiled religion. So what are those distinctions? He points out three of them, so listen to these three. It's not an exhaustive list of the differences between a true religion and a false religion, but there's three things that he calls into focus this morning. So listen for those three points, and we'll see those three points in the text. So listen along with me. Our first point is found in verse 26. The first point he, he brings to distinguish between true religion and worthless religion is about bridling your tongue. Bridling your tongue. We've heard that a number of times in the liturgy this morning. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. When we talk about bridling something, this is a horse image. You put a bridle and a bit on a horse to keep them under control. If you can guide their, their mouth, you can guide the body of this enormous animal. Horses are fantastic. Fantastic. They're amazing. They're these huge animals, but you can guide them if you can just guide their mouth with this bit and bridle. Some laws have, some states have laws about keeping um, an animal on a leash. If you have a dog, you have to keep it on a leash. That's not true in every state. Uh, maybe you've been on a trail before and you saw a dog that wasn't on a leash, or you've got a dog in your neighborhood and the owner doesn't like to keep it on a leash. Sometimes that can be okay, but sometimes that can be dangerous. Well, in this passage, imagine walking beside someone who had a lion that wasn't on a leash. That would be dangerous because our tongue, James tells us, is like a wild animal. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Think of a venomous snake. We can even surprise ourselves with the things that come out of our mouths. 
I bet every one of us at one point or another in our life, God forbid, but probably true, have, have said something and then said, I, I just wish I would not have said that. Uh, especially if someone provokes us or we're in a, a provoking situation, we might say something just wretched and sinful, just spewing out of our mouth. And we think, where did this come from? We're reminded of the sin that dwells within. We're reminded of Satan, the father of lies. Think about Satan. How did he tempt our first parents? It's with, with lies. And his name means he's the accuser. He's always accusing us, trying to bring guilt upon us. He's full of cursing, bitterness. And he tempts us to be like him by questioning the word of God and making us to question it. On the other hand, God is truth. And everything he says is true and lovely and pure and good. Jesus Christ himself is the word of God who was in the beginning with God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He is this lovely word, this true word that God puts on our tongues. That we become filled with. We become filled with the word of God. What our passage for today tells us is that the person of worthless religion does not bridle his tongue. He lets his tongue run loose. He lets his tongue run loose like a lion without a muzzle or a leash. What this is talking about is he doesn't repent. He speaks. He speaks sinfully, and he doesn't try to stop it. He doesn't repent. He doesn't turn to God. He doesn't ask for forgiveness. He doesn't strive by the power of God's grace to, to put off these old ways and to put on the new. But on the other hand, we understand by implication, that the person of pure religion, of true religion, puts a bridle on their tongue. And how do they do it? They do it through repentance. They try, they fail, they try again. They keep battling against this sin of the tongue. They don't put up with it in their life. They say, I, I know I struggle, I know I fail, but God, help me by your grace to turn away. Help me to put off these old ways of speaking, to put on Christ-like ways of speaking. Search out your life. That's what the passage is telling us to do. Which sins of the tongue entangle you? Is it lying? Could be even white lies, small lies. Is it gossip? Slander? Do you struggle with cursing others? Or thinking or saying hateful words or angry words or violent words? Do you use manipulative words with others? Do you twist the truth? Are you boastful? Do you take the name of the Lord in vain? Do you speak crude words or, or constant complaints? What is it that you struggle with? Let God search you out. Let God show you the areas of sin in your life with your tongue and ask him by his grace and help of his spirit to put a bridle on, on your tongue that you might steer your tongue in the right direction, that you won't let your tongue rule your life, but that you will bring it under the submission to Jesus Christ. Ask for God's forgiving grace to wash you clean and to set you straight and strive by the Spirit to put to death the sins of the tongue. The, the bridling of the tongue distinguishes false religion from true religion. A second point of the text to distinguish between worthless religion and pure religion is in verse 27. It's the visiting of the afflicted. The visiting of the afflicted. James writes, 
Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. We'll pause there. So the person of true religion visits orphans and widows in their affliction, he's saying, and the person of false religion does not. And he points out two groups of people here, orphans and widows. Think about orphans and widows for a moment here. We heard about orphans and widows. Did you catch it in the Isaiah passage of of God's care for them and of, of our calling to care for them? But orphans and widows, these are people who have lost a provider. They've lost a caregiver, a leader in their life, someone who provides for them physically, emotionally, spiritually. There's a huge void in the life of an orphan and of a widow. They have heavy needs, they've undergone heavy suffering, and they're still suffering, and they have deep relational needs. The calling is to come alongside them. And listen to what James says. He doesn't just say to to love them, but he says to visit them, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. He's precise with the language there, visit. It's not just care in your heart, but carry out that love by coming near to them to coming to them physically and relationally, to draw near with them. And when he says to visit them in their affliction, he means to bear those burdens along with them, to suffer with them, to carry the weight with them. We think of Jesus Christ on earth coming to to orphans and widows, coming to those in need, coming to those who are sick. You think of whenever Lazarus died and, and him suffering along with them. This is not just speaking about orphans and widows, though. This can apply to anyone who is afflicted and in need. It could be the poor, the sick, the disabled, the elderly. Think of prisoners, of of foreigners who have no relation near to them, and just in general, thinking of sinners. Care for other people can be difficult, it can be heavy, it can be costly, but that's what we're called to do. And we're called to follow God's own example. Isaiah Excuse me, Psalm 146, verse 9 says that the Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin, it says. If God cares for the widow and the fatherless and the sojourner, then we're called to do the same. You think of Christ's example on earth. He visited with the sick, the blind, the poor, the lame, with sinners. One of the clearest examples is how he dealt with the lepers. Think of what he did. Imagine being a leper in the ancient world. Not only do you have this terrible, incurable illness, but you've been shunned from society. People don't even want to be near you. But what did Jesus do? He came to them. He laid his hands on them while they were still lepers. And then he cured them. Such a picture, not just of love and and care, but of drawing near to those in affliction. Picture of the love of God. And Jesus told us, of course, to do the same. He told us to wash one another's feet. And he told the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember, who were the priests and the Levite? What did they do? They were supposedly religious. They looked religious, but they passed by. They passed by the person in need. And it was the Samaritan who stopped and at great expense to himself cared for the person in need. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. That's true religion. That's a picture of true religion. The person of true religion 
visits and cares for the person in need. Jesus gives us a grave warning in Matthew 25 when he tells us, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do to me. We're called to care for the least of these, for those who suffer, for those who are lowly. This is a calling that falls on the church. It falls especially on the pastors and the elders and the deacons to visit, to to shepherd, to care for the flock. But I believe this passage in James is speaking to every single member of the church. Now, not everyone is called to care for everyone. You can't be expected to care for every single person in need in this church or in the world or whatever. But I believe we're all called to care for someone. If you just look at any church, there's people in suffering and need in any church, and you have opportunities to serve. And if you look at any family, I'd say as well, you probably can find opportunities where you can love and show kindness and care for those in need. We all have opportunities, but we need to keep our eyes open because we could inadvertently be like the, the priest and the Levite, passing by people in need without even noticing. But God forbid that, and pray that God will open our eyes. We have to ask ourselves, have, have we hardened our hearts against loving anybody? Is there anybody that you've hardened your heart against loving? And also ask ourselves, are we open when we have the opportunity to give time, to give energy, to visit with those in need, to bear their burdens alongside them? It's a great opportunity, and I think we could probably all say that we've found the blessing that we find when, when we care for others, that God shows us grace and can build us up as we show love and care. So a second distinguishing point between true and false religion is the visiting of the afflicted. The third and final point James makes to distinguish between true and false religion is also in verse 26, in the second half. I mean, I'm sorry, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Our third point is keeping yourself unstained from the world. Do you have a lot of stains? <laughs> I'm left-handed. I'm pretty clumsy. I spill a lot of things. I've got three young kids. I've got a puppy in my house, and I like to drink coffee. That's like a formula for stains everywhere. <laughs> I'm looking all right this morning. I could probably find a stain if I looked. And what do we know about stains? If you want to get out a stain or prevent a stain, after a spill, what do you need to do? You need to clean it up quickly, right? Quickly clean it up. Don't let it sink in. What this passage is telling us is that sin can sink in and cause stains. It says, keep oneself unstained from the world. He's speaking about sin there, and he uses the phrase, the world. Keep yourself unstained from the world. Think about that. Why does he say, keep yourself unstained from the world? What's the problem with the world? Didn't God create the world? Isn't the world good? There is is plenty of good and wonderful things in the world because God made it, right? And there is plenty of good things that God gives us to enjoy, didn't he? He wouldn't make our food taste so good if he didn't want us to enjoy it. But we could take the good things of the world and make them into little gods. That's what people did all throughout the Bible, worshiping things that God has made rather than worshiping God. We can take something that's good and make it into a sin by worshiping it. He could also be talking about this when he says, keep oneself unstained from the world. 
about the course of the world because the world is on a course that's different than the course that God calls us to. You think of the pilgrim and pilgrim's progress. He sets himself on course toward the celestial city, but he, he sees plenty of people on a different route. And if we follow the course of this world, and we'll live in the passions of the flesh, we'll carry out the desires of the body and of the mind, we'll be enslaved by our sin, captivated by our sin, stained by our sin. And calling here is to keep ourselves unstained from the world. I think in the church, what we need to think about are those little hidden sins that other people don't see. Those things that you can hide in your life. You might look religious and, and, and like an upright Christian, but every single one of us has sins. And we have to be careful that we don't have some sort of sin that we're cherishing. It could be hidden from others so they don't notice it. Or it could be one of those respectable sins that the world won't call you out on, but they're still sinful. Think of things like ambition and being obsessed with success or having a certain type of pride. You could be obsessed with popularity or, or even people-pleasing. And these things can become sinful. They might be respectable in the eyes of the world, but they can be just devastating in the life of a Christian. When we become a Christian, we're like a branch that's broken off and, and grafted into a new, a new plant, a new vine. We are a, a new creation in Christ Jesus, and we're called to make a complete break with the past. The allure of the world, though, will pull us back. Uh, one picture is, remember Lot's wife? What happened with Lot's wife? They're called out of Sodom, and what does she do? She turns back, and she turns into a pillar of salt, and that's a warning to us. You think of the rich young ruler. Why didn't he want to follow Jesus anymore? Because Jesus called him to part with his possessions, and he loved those things. He didn't want to do it. On the other hand, you think of Zacchaeus, and he was, he was ready to give it up because he saw the, the wonder and the beauty of Jesus Christ, and he was ready to put off the world, to let go of these stains of sin. So look at yourself. How deep are you into the world? Have you settled in a little bit too much? Remember, we're just passing through. We're headed somewhere else. Are you ready to let go of your things? But when we think of the stain and the stains of sin and how we're always fighting sin and it can feel like it's just always creeping up on us and entangling us like a vine, it's, it's latching onto us like a thorn, it's sinking into us and we're just always struggling to get away from it, we could lose hope, but we have a great hope, don't we? What is our only hope? The blood of Jesus Christ that can remove every stain, the ultimate stain remover. Our sins are like scarlet, remember? But he makes us white as snow. We need to be washed, and we need to ask him. And ask him not just to take away the guilt of your sin, but to take away the sin itself. Ask God to take away the desire to sin. Ask him to put a new fight in you. If you've stopped fighting against some sin in your life, say, God, help me again to, to start up the fight, to keep fighting, to fight the sins. Uh, think of being married. When we're married, we have to forsake all others, right? And cling only to our spouse. And to be a Christian, we need to forsake all sin. That's what we're called to do. So we come here to the end of the passage, and we've examined these words 
And we let them examine ourselves, and we have to ask ourselves today and in the coming days, what is it that we're finding in ourselves? Do we find pictures and any, any evidence of ways that he's grown us? And praise God for that. If you've come under any conviction about your sin, then let it drive you to repentance. Take these things and repent and know that the blood of Jesus cleanses us. This passage isn't saying that in order to be a Christian, we have to be pure and undefiled and sinless. It's saying that Christ makes us pure and undefiled when we walk in repentance and seeking after new obedience. We're never going to get perfect in this life, but remember these things. Put a bridle on your tongue. Make an effort to visit with the afflicted. And keep fighting against the sins of this world and the stains of sin. If the Spirit brings you under conviction, don't squander that conviction. Let it drive you to a new obedience. If you humble yourself before the cross, you can trust that Christ in time will exalt you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful gift we have in the blood of Jesus Christ. All of us fall short of your glory. All of us sin. We know we all sin with our tongue, and, and uh, we all fight against the sins of the world, and we all fall short in loving others the way that you've loved us. But God, help us. Put this passage deep in our hearts to convict us. Show us ways that we can walk in new obedience. Show us the areas where we're struggling if we don't see them. Help us to see them. And by your grace and your spirit, help us to walk in these new ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.